Yeah. Not, not, not the TV fans are taking over. This is Across the Airwaves. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Across the Airways, the podcast dedicated to giving weekly TV show episode reviews, along with news and opinions on the television industry. I'm Dan Schmidt, your host, still running on a Smallville high after Friday night, and with me is my co-host and star of a children's television science show. Hey, everybody, it's Nico. This week, we'll be discussing more new episodes of Chuck, Castle, Bones, Fringe, Smallville, and Supernatural. Same as we do every week. And before we get things started, first we'd like to make a shout out to Michael J. Petty, who was our co-host during our live show for the Smallville 200th episode. He did a lot of great work for us with promos and just helping out the night of the broadcast and everything like that. So we want to give him a nice thank you. I also would like to take the time to thank our listeners of this podcast and everyone over at Starkville's House of L, the Smallville podcast, who joined us for our Smallville 200th episode live show. In my opinion, I felt it was a really awesome way for all of us to capitalize on a memorable event for Superman fans everywhere. And I really enjoyed meeting some new people who shared my passion for Smallville. Also, special thanks needs to go to Joe Humrick, co-host on SHU, for supporting our live show. And Joe, if you're listening, it truly meant a lot to Nico and I, along with Michael, for a SHU co-host to take interest in our podcast. So with that, we're going to move into our discussion on the first show to start out the week, Chuck, with the episode Chuck versus the Coupe du Jour. This week's episode, Chuck and Sarah work on their relationship as they accompany Elian Devon, Costa Gravis, to meet Generalissimo Alejandro Goya, who finds himself in a dangerous situation once again. Casey has to contend with Morgan's interest in his daughter. As the summary just mentioned, this episode featured the return of the Generalissimo from the early Season 3 episode, Chuck vs. the Angel de la Marte. In other words, Casey. However, what made this episode entertaining and a step up from last week was not the return of a guest star. It was the supporting men of this show. Captain Awesome, Casey, Big Mike, and Morgan, each getting their chance to shine. And Captain Awesome got his chance to shine through him setting up some of the funniest scenes of the episode. These things included Awesome having a private conversation with the baby inside Ellie's stomach and his interaction with the giant life-like statue of himself that Costa Gravis made in his honor, which was just a really funny moment. His facial reactions was just great in this whole scene where he saw the statue. And it also reminded me a little bit of the Firefly episode, Jadestown, where there's a life-size <laughs> statue made of Adam Baldwin's character on that show, Jade. As for Casey, his chance to shine can be best described as moments of glory through him telling stories about living in the walls of the Generalissimo's palace and overcoming the gunshot wound he got in last week's episode by this badass scene where he stood up from his wheelchair to confront a group of rebel soldiers. I also thought the scene where Morgan was taking care of Casey and his daughter walked in 
was absolute comedic gold. And I love how excited Casey got when Chuck called him for an escape route out of the Generalissimo's palace when things went haywire when the Generalissimo's wife betrayed him and created a coup against his government. And this scene where Alex and Morgan were taking care of Casey also set up Big Mike's chance to shine as he tells Morgan that there can be no book on love. He just needs to man up and make his move on Casey's daughter. That's my impression of Big Mike. Don't know if it works for you guys, but I thought it was worth giving it a shot. And with that, my man Morgan makes his move in his own moment of glory when he and Alex share some serious kissing action. Or in other words, tongue action. And with this, i got to say I'm really happy for Morgan. Because the television romantic in me says that he and Alex are really, really cute together. By the way, in case you're wondering, we have not forgotten about Chuck, who decided to deal with the aftermath of his accidental proposal in last week's episode by using a self-help book to help him and Sarah communicate with each other better. However, in classic sitcom fashion, Sarah discovers that Chuck is using a self-help book, and she's not necessarily thrilled. But eventually they end up resolving their relationship issues by resolving the problems between the Generalissimo and his wife, preventing a nuclear war in the process. Returning home, Chuck reveals to his sister they has become a spy again to help track down their mother. And surprisingly, Ellie accepted it for the most part. I know Nico and I, before in earlier episodes, have predicted that Ellie was going to kind of have a big clash with Chuck and Sarah over his decision to be a spy and a hero. And Ellie, right away, just him bringing up their mother and then her scene in action just immediately made her accept it. And I thought there needed to be just a little bit more friction there. And this is followed by Sarah lying in bed telling a sleeping Chuck that if his proposal was real, she would have said yes. And at this point, Chuck lives up to its title as one of my feel-good shows by the camera panning in and showing Chuck, who we thought was asleep, smiling, realizing that the woman he loved was willing to marry him. And I have to say, that was a nice, heartwarming ending and a great way to bridge into Castle, which aired later on that night. So with that, Nico, what was your thoughts on this romantic, funny, and enjoyable episode of Chuck? Chuck was a great episode this week. One of my favorite scenes was actually the scene where Chuck saves Ellie and Awesome, and they were totally amazed by how good he was and how natural he looked. It was great to see Chuck be able to be seen as a hero in his family's eyes. Ellie's always had such a problem with him being a spy that it was great to see both Awesome and Ellie just amazed and realize how good he is at what he does. As for the season storytelling theme of using a weekly problem between Chuck and Sarah and having the mission and characters involved in the mission each week help them work through it, for me, it's getting a little old fast. Don't get me wrong, I love Chuck and Sarah together, and it's the only plot device that works that keeps them together. But I'm just saying, it could be getting old kind of quickly. For example, this week got a little ridiculous with Chuck acting as that marriage counselor you were talking about. Yes. In middle of a coup with nuclear war on the line. You know, it's funny. It was funny. made me smile. But at the same time, I felt that it was a giant chunk of cheddar. Cheesy. But I love it because it's Chuck. Yes. That's what we expect from this show. For the most part, 
Yeah, I'm totally loving Chuck, and I think our discussion each week are evidence that the season has been entertaining, exciting, and everything we had hoped for when we started talking about Chuck this summer during our Comic-Con episode. Yes. You know, we have to pick the nitty-gritty details out when we, when we love this show as much as we love Chuck to find something to complain about that's not a good thing. And that, in itself, is a good thing because it means that Chuck is rock-solid, and I love it. The show, I mean... It's in a bumpy path, but I give them credit because they're trying something new for television, which is having them stay together. You and I both know the Joss Whedon rule of thumb that you can't keep the relationships together because it's not interesting if you don't do it that way. And this show is just, I think, it's fine. It's doing what it needs to to keep the relationship together. And again, we've talked about this, that even though we love Chuck a whole lot, the show doesn't have that much longer of a life expectancy. And that's not because the writers failed or cancellation or anything like that. I just don't know if there's anything more you can do with it past the season five or six. And I hate to say that, but I think that'll give us a satisfying ending to this show. So I, I get what you're saying with it getting old. But mm-hmm. I, I'm still entertained by it. It's not as bad. I mean, I've seen seasons of other shows where things get old and you're just really rolling your eyes. And I, early my oh, no, I look forward to watching it. Yeah, it's like I said, I have to really struggle to find something yeah. to throw out there that I didn't like about Chuck. And maybe this is what I came up with, you know, was that the weekly problem in their relationship becomes the storytelling method for the week. And we get characters who have an extravagant coup because their marriage is falling apart. And that is, like I said, cheesy. But at the same time, it's Chuck, and it's what we've come to expect from Chuck. Amazing, awesome, great show with a little cheese thrown in there, just for all of us that love that kind of stuff. So I'm not saying anything is wrong with Chuck or the way they're going. I would like to see them maybe jump more into the mother aspect and going after mom and finding. I mean, they did throw that in with them having bought the nukes through her or through the organization that she was undercover with. So they are keeping it alive. But I think we need to jump into that storyline a little bit more and leave the Chuck and Sarah thing for every couple episodes. Well, I think we need to bring in a villain that really gets under Chuck's skin. Mm-hmm. Kind of like Shaw. I know we wanted him to die a million times last season. But in the end, he's a really rock-solid villain that got underneath Chuck's skin. And they did, with that type of character, they did maintain somewhat of the humor of the show as well. Yeah, but, absolutely. And again, I'm not saying that every episode should have a character like that, but I wish we had more of a menacing figure running around in the shadow. And the mob might be that. That may happen next week or the week after, but that needs to happen now. I'm feeling a calling for that, and I think we're going to get it. I mean, I know NBC gave us that really misleading preview, but in two weeks from now, I think we're going to get everything we wanted and more with that. Okay. Well, do you think Chuck's off the hook? In terms of a cancellation situation? I think it's going to make it through this season for sure, without a doubt. I, if it hasn't gotten picked up yet, it'll get picked up for the back end of the season okay. before Christmas. And we'll see a full season. But this might be the last season, or it might be that they get a final season and told that that next season's going to be your last. You just NBC's in such a rut that it would yeah. almost be dumb not to try one more season. It might not have the largest audience, 
but it's got a devoted audience. Yeah. And you can't throw away a show like that to put on the other stuff that they put on this year. We're four weeks into the season and they've already canceled shows. Yes. So. And more may come. So. Yeah. We'll see. But anyhow, we're going to go talk to about a show on a network that's somewhat more stable, ABC, with the Castle episode, Punked. In this week's episode, Castle and Beckett investigate the murder of a young mathematician killed with a 200-year-old bullet. This makes Castle's imaginations go wild, giving out some crazy ideas about a time-traveling killer. This week's episode, actually kind of, I watched this show with my family, and it kind of left my house somewhat divided. With my dad and I kind of fascinated by the mystery of a steampunk duel gone wrong. Also, if you're interested in what the term steampunk means, I'm going to put it in the ACC so you can look up the definition of that term on the website that I'll give you the link to. But basically, my dad and I were fascinated by this mystery of a steampunk duel gone wrong. But the rest of my family really felt like this episode kind of went all over the place where there was just way too much happening with characters, the mystery, and everything. But regardless of kind of what my family or other people thought of this episode, Castle emerging himself in the world of steampunk was highly entertaining. And Nathan Fillon's acting during Beckett and Castle's visit to the steampunk bar really gave this location a strong sense of wonder. And it was also fun to see Castle in the mechanical costume he was wearing in one scene where he interacted with Alexis, and also Beckett catching him wearing the costume because her facial reaction was hilarious. Although, with all these great scenes showcasing Castle's imagination running wild, I was kind of left disappointed that he did not get to see the murder victim's DeLorean. And again, they tried to make up for it with Castle giving some crazy theories about time ripples that were topped off with him giving us a Terminator reference, which was great. But I still had this strong desire for Nathan Fillon to say the line, Roads? Where we're going, we don't need roads. And even though this episode was all about time travel and steampunk, the funniest moment in this episode did not come from Castle's imagination running wild, like it has in previous weeks. In this episode, it came from Castle meeting Alexis's new boyfriend, Ashley, with a gun accidentally in his hand. Gosh, this is my dad, Rick, and I have no idea why he's waving a gun. So nice to meet you, Mr. Castle. You too, Ashley, and I have a perfectly good reason why I'm waving a gun. And the fact that Alexis's new boyfriend's name is Ashley... Name's Ash. Housewares. Makes me feel like someone in that writer's room has seen or is a big fan of the Evil Dead movies created by Sam Raimi and starring Bruce Campbell. So I thought that was interesting as that name. Also, with this scene of meeting the boyfriend, as with any scene, Nathan Fillon, of course, is expected to be great because we love him so much. But I thought that Molly Quinn, the actress who plays Castle's daughter Alexis, had a great performance in this scene. Through her almost acting like the adult in the situation, which was quite funny. Also, this episode played a card that a TV show can only use every once in a while, unless they're Chuck. With the concept of Esposito being the beat-em-up guy, through him getting his neck injured by a guy that would even terrify Nico and my friend Big Paul. And basically, what happens is, after Esposito gets injured, he keeps continuously getting injured or hurt throughout the episode. And in case you don't know, 
the term that I use, beat em up guy, is a term that I give to characters like Daffy Duck, Chubbs from Happy Gilmore, and Curly from the Three Stooges, <laughs> who continuously have slapstick mishaps happen to them. Finally, I have to say that I was completely blindsided by Beckett's new boyfriend showing up at the very end of this episode, because it simply came out of nowhere, and I wish they would have taken a whole episode to introduce him like they did with Hannah on Bones. Plus, on top of that, this episode ended with me asking, how is Castle and everyone going to react to Beckett's new boyfriend? And what is going on with Castle's ex-wife? I mean, you got together with her at the end of the season, but we haven't seen her at all. But I did do some reading on TV.com, and she's going to be in next week's episode. But I'm wondering if they should have brought her in sooner. So far, this show has been great, but I'm kind of nervous and wondering if leaving out the aspect of Castle's ex-wife is going to lead for trouble for the writers and the Beckett-Castle romance down the road. So with those questions, I'm going to pad things over to you, Nico. Yeah, I have to agree that Castle immersing himself in the world of steampunk was highly entertaining this week. It's no secret that I love Nathan Williams' acting, and he shined bright during the Beckett and Castle visit to the steampunk bar, yes. as you said. And it really gave the location th- that strong sense of wonder you were talking about. I totally felt that, too. Now, I've not gotten caught up in the steampunk movement being a nerd slash geek that I am, and my yeah. fascination with the past and the future, makes me think that I could very easily find myself drawn to that culture. <laughs> As for the new boyfriend that you were just talking about, I don't actually think that he is a new boyfriend. Okay. I thought maybe her brother. I don't know if we know if she has a brother or not, but it seems like they were way too familiar to be new lovers. And the he said what, Kate hasn't told you about me? And how he knew all about Castle and the other detectives. Like, so you think known she's each other. just teasing him? Like she yeah, has I, been known I do. to do? Okay. I think she left out their relationship status when he showed up just to make them wonder, and especially to make Castle wonder. And <laughs> the things that I said, it makes him seem like they've known each other for a long time and he knows all about her work. That's not something you tell a brand new boyfriend. That's I think true. brother makes more sense in this situation or an old friend, but I think the brother would be an easier sell for us. Well, it would um, be funny too. Now, the actor they use, isn't that the guy from Star? I don't think so. No, I thought it might be or was that the guy who played the first boyfriend? The guy that played the first boyfriend Deming back in season 2 was Anders mm-hmm. from Battlestar Galactica. That's what I'm thinking. The guy they use now had a similar yes, look. Yes, he, he does look similar. I did think of that, too. Okay. My last point was going to be kind of a big actor to play the brother, but it's not the same guy that was the first boyfriend, which made sense. Okay. So, yeah. yeah. Now, going back to the mystery, this week's mystery was actually pretty good. Yeah. We thought it might be the duel that killed the victim, but really, it was the son of one of his investors, who we probably would have thought of originally, but they took us away from that by showing him to us so early in the episode, and then him having such a great alibi. Also, this led to a hilarious scene where Castle was shooting the old dueling pistol, yeah. and the officer next to him kept getting mad at how terrible his aim was, yeah. and the, the different contraptions they made to, to try and make it shoot better. I forgot about um, that scene. That was great. <laughs> yeah, 
I think that that was actually the best scene of the episode, in my yes, opinion. I liked it even more. I liked it even more than meeting that. Ashley. I can't believe I did. Go ahead. No, no worries. I think it was better than the meeting Ashley scene, but only because it was funnier in my mind. Yeah. But the Ashley scene is is going to probably play some importance in comedy for the remainder of the season because I think Alexis and Ashley are going to have a couple more scenes where Castle barges in and makes a fool of himself or something of that nature, and it'll be funny when well, it happens. I, I think it would be fun if they did an episode. Where it was a rivalry between who's more fun, Castle or Ashley? Yeah, because you know we've seen him like doing laser tag and playing games and doing some really funny stuff with Alexis, and it would be kind of funny to see the boyfriend kind of steal his thunder a little bit with that sort of stuff. I think ultimately, though, if they do that early in the episode, it's going to make it seem like Ashley's more fun, but in the end, she's going to come and it's going to be. Right. Her time with Castle is going to be the, the better time. And that's kind of what we saw this time in the last two minutes of the show, or the minute of the show, when she asked him if he could go on a date, and it was with Castle, you know, so they could have some father-daughter time. That was cute, and it was really a good scene, because it shows that relationship that they have. Well, what did you think of the whole thing with Esposito getting run over and his neck brace and all that? Was that cheesy to you, or...? I'm not a big fan of that. Okay. It has its place. It was funnier coming out of the steampunk where, yes. you know, they're standing there and he just gets bowled over. And that time it was funny. And I guess you needed the previous two times for it to build up to that. Yeah. But I'm not a huge fan of that comedic tool. Yeah, it's a card you can only play every once in a while, like I said, my point. Yeah. And uh, now yeah. that they've done it, hopefully they won't do that again. Yeah, I hope it's done, and they don't try and bring it back in the next episode. Once again, this is another rock-solid episode, and I think every week's been great. Yeah, they have, knock on wood, they have not had a miss yet this season. And it seems like things are going to be building up. Next week we've got the ex-wife coming in, which will probably resolve some of those plot holes. And then the week after that, I think we're going to get our big gravedigger overarching killer coming into the story. Oh, nice. So I'm looking forward to that. Can't wait for that analysis of that episode. But hopefully we won't get him coming in and then we get a hiatus right after that because that would be a bummer. Speaking of shows that had an episode just before hiatus, that title goes to Bones with the episode The Body and the Bounty. On this week's episode, the team goes on a search for missing body parts after they find a decomposing skull and hands in a dumpster. After the victim is identified as a bounty hunter who is searching for a killer named Braverman, the team discovers that someone else is looking for Braverman as well, resulting in a case with an unexpected suspect. Meanwhile, Brennan makes children's show star Professor Bunsen Jude the Science Dude her new intern. And one quick blurb I want to say about the summary... The way that that was written, I read it before the episode, and when they said unexpected suspect, I was thinking that like Bones' dad was going to come in, or there was going to be something surprising like that. So that was a little misleading, because I, I thought with them going on hiatus that they were going to give us something big in this episode. And it really didn't go there, but it's just interesting how these summaries can tell you one thing, but something else completely different happens in the episode. Anyway... <laughs> This week's episode did not move anything forward in terms of the characters' story arcs, but it did not mean that it was bad. 
In fact, this episode was highly entertaining due to Bones taking on a new intern, Professor Bunsen Jude, the science dude. A Bill Nye knockoff Bill Nye the Science Guy played by comedian David Allen Greer. And in my opinion, I've really enjoyed David Allen Greer in most of his appearances that I've seen. And it was great to see him reincarnate Bill Nye the Science Guy. A persona that I really enjoyed in my childhood. Bill, 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 Bill. Also, over the past couple days, I have caught myself using Professor Jude's quirky catchphrases, which can only be described as Amazing! And I loved it how Bones and Angela kept calling Professor Jude the dude because I kept expecting Jeff Bridges to show up as his character from The Big Lebowski. I'm the dude. So that's what you call me, you know? Uh, that or uh, his dudeness or uh, duder or, uh, you know, El Duderino if you're not into the whole brevity thing. Also, going back to David Greer's performance, his best scene was when he was standing at the autopsy table asking Cam and Hodges questions like they were the kids on his television show. <laughs> and it was also really funny to see Hodges get so excited when the dude was around because it reminded me of the kid in the candy store expressions that we normally get from Castle. At the same time, the thought of Hodges playing a drinking game to a children's science television show was quite amusing. And I loved it how the dude went, Amazing! And they got Hodges to take a drink of alcohol in the lab, and it really grossed him out. It was also a great idea to have the dude and Hodges perform an experiment together, minus the cheesy CGI shot of the dude throwing a baseball, which was completely yeah. unnecessary. I have no idea why it was there. Due to this mystery of battling bounty hunters and David Allen Greer's performance, we didn't get to see a lot of sweets in this episode. But it was nice to see him working with another patient besides Bones and Booth. I also thought that Booth forcing Sweets to help a man decide on a sex change in two minutes was a laugh riot. And another great scene that set up the final scene of this episode was when Angela used her baby that's on the way to convince Bones to be on the dude's show because it drew her attention towards the fact that love can be connected to science. And with that heartwarming thought, what was your thoughts on this week's Bones, Nico? This episode was amazing! Yes! <laughs> I don't Part actually like David Allen Greer most of the time, but yeah. Dag was excellent as the science dude in this episode. I especially enjoyed Bones coming out in that ridiculous outfit, and her yes. performance on the show was great. And it showed that she will be a great aunt to Angela and Hodgins' baby, and she may even make a great mother in the future. Yeah. Now, you said that you did not really feel like it progressed the story along that much this week. And in Booth and Bones aspect, I agree 100%. However, I think it did move along the Bones character formation or her development that we've been seeing this season. I think that Bones is changing in small increments, but changing towards the woman that can recognize and actually feel her feelings and that eventually Celie will fall back in love with. And I think that that's the purpose of this season, the entire season, is to see that evolution of her character. In that sense, I think this episode, especially those last two minutes, maybe even the last 15, but especially when she came out on the show, it showed that she's at least open to that change that's going on. 
Once again, I thought of Zach this week and how much I miss him from the show now. Yes. When the science dude and Hodgins were doing their experiments, I was totally thinking of Zach and how it would be great if after they figured it out, one of them was like, I'm the king of the lab. You know, yeah. but without Zach, that joke just really has lost its momentum. And that's sad because it's definitely one of the things you and I loved about the early seasons. Yes. Now, the best scene of this episode Probably was the potato gun. Yeah. It was, last time I'm going to do it, amazing! <laughs> well, I just I love Hodgins' eyes when he saw that potato yes. gun. Oh yes. my gosh, that was hilarious. I think in most states, potato guns are illegal, so I won't admit to having made one. But <laughs> I have seen one, and they are fun to watch someone else shoot. <laughs> and, no, it was really interesting that they did the experiment, and then they're like, yeah, something like a potato. And then it ended up being a beanbag gun. Yeah. But it was great. Overall, this episode was a great episode. It was fun. And I watched it, yeah, I watched it on Saturday, and it really made my day. Until Notre Dame beat up on Western Michigan, <laughs> and that really made my day. That wasn't amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was. <laughs> so yeah. It was a good episode. I really enjoyed it. And I don't think it was because Hannah was not present in this episode. But no, I don't think so. Maybe that, maybe that did have some effect on me, but not really. It was just good writing. And Dag really did an excellent job as the science dude. Yeah, that was a great call to bring him in as that character. It was not something I would have thought of, but... It was a great move. And really, they are dead on when it comes to bringing in people as interns. They have done such a great job at casting that role for so many people. I mean, especially yeah, have- with Zach leaving the show and us having that void. These actors that they've brought in as interns have really filled the void and made a lot of these episodes. And the great thing is they keep the show fresh because with the different assortment of interns, you get a different aspect added to every episode. So I think that's why they've continued with that concept of having the rotating interns. And I hope that they consider bringing in other big-time actors to be an intern on a few episodes. Because they got the budget for it. It would be fun to see some other actors out there or maybe even some people that are in the movie show up for one episode just for fun. That would be kind of entertaining, I think. Yeah, they really have done a great job, as you said, picking good actors to play these eccentric interns. That's why I was so surprised with the Hannah character, as we mentioned a couple episodes ago, that they didn't go with a more established actress. Well, I think after the break, I don't know if you saw the preview for the next episode, but I have a feeling she might be done. I did not. Because I watched it on Saturday, I did not get the uh, preview for next week, or for a couple weeks. Basically, there's a gunshot that goes off, and Hannah falls to the ground. Oh. So I don't know what that's about, but something's going down with her next week. So I don't know what that's going to do, but they said that things are going to get really shaken up the next episode when they come back after the World Series and everything's done and over with. Okay. And by the way, I know we talked about this last week's episode. Bones will not be back until November 4th due to baseball airing on Fox. So just keep that out there. We'll remind you on our Twitter page, but just want to make sure everyone knows they're looking for it on Thursday. It's not going to be there. And that's also so you know, too, as well, Nico. 
I was aware of this break for okay. once. <laughs> good deal. I just want to make sure we're all on the same page. And yep, sounds good. sadly, with that, that also means that we're not going to get any more Fringe either until after the World Series. So we're going to move into our discussion about Fringe, which we won't get to have for a couple of weeks. With the episode, Do Shapeshifters Dream of Electric Sheep? <laughs> Yes, in this week's episode, Newton activates a sleeper shapeshifter agent and Fringe Division's investigation of the case leads to massive dynamic. This week's Fringe really hit close to home, with Broyles discovering that his good friend, who happens to be a U.S. senator, is a shapeshifter. And this becomes even more chilly because, one, shapeshifters may have infiltrated every level of this side's government, and two, the senator knew everything about the Fringe team. However, before things get too intense... We get a great scene with Dr. Bishop addressing his new employees at Massive Dynamic that literally almost sent me to the floor laughing. The way John Noble played it was just hilarious. And him about ready to pull down his pants in front of the whole group of scientists that were listening to him was quite hilarious. Then we also got a moment where Dr. Bishop actually called Astrid by her correct name, which was astounding. And through him doing this, this really showed that he really now does care about Astrid and really respects her as his lab assistant. And this has also shown that from where it started in season one, their relationship has evolved tremendously. And with all these great Dr. Bishop moments in this episode, I once again have to say that John Noble is simply an incredibly talented actor. But in talking about the good with this show, we always have to end up talking about the bad. Am I bad? As Nico knows, and those of you who are listening to our show regularly, I'm talking about Anna Torv, whose character of Bolivia faces several close calls in this episode of being discovered that she has switched places with Olivia. And even though these close calls are exciting for the purpose of the story, I feel like Anna Torv's acting makes Peter look like an idiot for not being able to figure out that Bolivia is Olivia. Thankfully, Peter was suspicious of her, but Anna Torv really seems to be overplaying Bolivia to differentiate her from Olivia. And this is kind of making her come across as a poor man's Tess Mercer, which is interesting. If you've seen Smallville, Tess Mercer is a person that's kind of likes to cause trouble and seduce people and things like that. And they're kind of doing the same thing with Bolivia. But Anna Torv, she just, she doesn't sometimes convey emotions properly. So... I don't know, it just makes you really just dislike her even more when she starts acting this way. I don't know, it just bothers me. We'll get into that when we both talk about this, Nico. Mm-hmm. But anyway, despite their shortcomings with the character of Olivia, this show has a real knack for making their one-off characters memorable. And here in this episode, we got a shapeshifter in the form of a police officer who was forced to leave his family in order to follow his programming, which is to help support the alternate reality. And on most shows, the writers would not normally give a character like this very much depth. But on Fringe, they made his story emotionally driven through this great scene where the shapeshifter discusses with his son how the monster underneath the bed could become your best friend. And what he's saying with this is he's actually referring to himself. And kind of at first thought, this concept may seem kind of childish, but if you watch the episode, I thought this was a great way to segue into the classic argument over the notion that machines can feel emotion. 
which I think Fringe gave its own twist to. And as this episode continued, I learned a new fact. A Stegosaurus's brain is in their tail, just like the shapeshifters. Well, it's actually more like a shapeshifter's tailbone, to be precise. And this prompts a race between the shapeshifter and the Fringe team to get their hands on the shapeshifting senator's databank. And this race kind of ends with the big bad from Season 2, and at the beginning of Season 3, Newton being apprehended by the FBI. Finally, in the last scene of the episode, Olivia, fearing that she is becoming cold like the shapeshifter, sleeps with Peter, just like Nico called it in a previous episode. I think you said that in the Comic-Con episode. Is that right, Nico? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you called it here. And I think he's going to wake up the next morning and realize that the Olivia Dunham he just slept with is not from our universe. And to get the answer to that question, we're going to have to wait till November, sadly. But with that, right. we're going to get your thoughts on it, Fridge, Nico. Thanks for giving me the thoughts on calling that. Because I, yes. I definitely you deserve believe it. that that was one of my crackpot theories that actually panned out. And you called that, I think um, you called that even before we started the podcast. Uh, yeah, we had talked about it a couple times, and I just felt like it was something that made sense, to me at least. And I believe in two episodes, not two weeks, because like we talked about baseball break, but in two episodes, when we return to our reality, we will see Peter confront Bolivia and learn the truth. Oh, that's right, we have to and wait longer. Uh, yeah, it's going to probably be bummer. the second episode after the return. I think uh, he's going to confront her, and he'll learn the truth that she's not his Olivia, and the remainder of the season, until the mid-season finale, will be them trying to get back to the other reality so he can save his Olivia. Now, do you think that they're going to go there that quick, that they're going to resolve it by the finale, the mid-season finale? I think that they might get to the point where they learn how to do it, but they're going to have to come up with a new crossover because they used Olivia last time. As right. the catalyst. So how are they going to do it now? they got to think of a new way. Yeah, because that's what I feel and, like it's going to be, is that they're going to figure it out mid-season, and then the other half is going to be figuring it out how to get over there. Yeah. Or so it maybe may happen right. the other way. Olivia may come back. But I think it's more oh, interesting. That, for, what? Go ahead. That's actually a good twist that I hadn't thought of, that she would come back, and then she'd have to try and convince them that she was who she was or something like that. Because can't she travel between... Isn't she supposed, she can. supposed to have the ability to travel between both? Okay. And she's the only person known to have that ability innately. Well, I really want to see the world's blur. Uh, to which I mean, I don't yeah. mean like, you know, in a physical sense. I meant that there's going to be people crossing over different sides all the time. I don't know if that's the way they're going to go. It would be interesting, but I think that the theory that they're working on is that if the two universes had too much crossover, it would destroy one of them or could destroy both of them. So I think if we see too much crossing over, we're going to start seeing detrimental effects on our side as well as the ones that are going on on the other side. Because like, it feels like they're gearing up to a war between the worlds for both sides. And then I think what's going to happen is going to be like a Battlestar Galactica kind of thing where the two opposite sides actually combine forces to stop a bigger threat. Okay. Which um, I think it's going to be no, both I... sides against Walternate. I think that's what's going to happen. Or they can bring in a third reality that's the threat. I don't know. You know, I actually had a thought on that, and that was that you already talked about 
the shapeshifter with a family, and I think you were pretty spot on with your analysis of oh, that. Yeah. I think that it really couldn't have been done by most shows, that they wouldn't have given the depth that they gave the character, no. but that Fringe did it, and I think that's what makes this show kind of special, you know? And yeah. it was unfortunate that they killed him in this episode, because yeah, I, I think it would have been... I think it would have been interesting if he had turned state evidence, as the saying goes, and started helping the fringe side so that he could keep his pseudo-family safe. So in a sense, the machine went against its programming because of his love of his pseudo-family. That would have been a great plot twist. I think it's going to come. I think they're going to approach that again. You think so? Because they wouldn't have introduced all that stuff about the shapeshifters if there's not going to be a character or something that's brought up that has to do with that stuff. Okay, so it, my idea might still happen, but not with that character, obviously, with something else. Yeah. I feel like it's the kind of thing where they're like, oh, we did this in this episode, and then they went back to the writer's room and went, oh, my God, wait a second, we could do that again. Or we yeah. could expand that concept. Now, I have to agree with you that Peter not knowing was really bothering me. Yeah. Because... As you said, her acting, or at least the scenes that she was overacting, were getting bad. And how could he not know? So yeah, I was but glad do you to think see it the... is her acting? Is that is that the problem? Am I right with that? I don't know. I think it's definitely... They told her that she has to make a distinct difference between the two characters so the audience can keep it straight. But I think they've gone overboard. And I don't know if that's her, the writers, or both. But it seems like everybody else is not on, so you can't give too much play to the writers. I really can't say whether it's her or a combination. I was glad to see the scene where he mentioned that he had noticed her differences since returning, because that kind of took the burden off of Peter, and they kind of explained it away. He's kind of functioning in the same way that Charlie is on the other side, where yeah. I think Peter's suspicious in the same way that Charlie was suspicious on the other side. But it's too much for either one of them to suspend their disbelief. That that right, and that's happen. why I think after they sleep together, he will notice something that makes it undeniable to him that she is not his Olivia. Yeah. That is essentially my continuation of that crackpot theory. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think that's where it's going to go. It's exciting that way, and TV's done it a million times. Yeah. Also, did you like the whole uh, Stegosaurus concept with the shapeshifters? Because I thought that yeah, was you know, creative I, how they thought of that. I didn't have a chance to look it up on the internet or in a science text or anything like that to ensure that they got it right. But I did think in humans, we have our brain, which is connected to our midbrain, which is connected to our spinal cord, or to our brainstem, which is then connected to our spinal cord. And where our spinal cord comes out is down in the sacral level of our... connected our, to the... Headphones. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So he was talking about the sacral level of the spinal column, and ours, that's where our spinal cord ends, and out of it comes this thing called the corda equina. It means horse's tail, because that's what it looks like with all the nerves that are remaining that go to our lower limbs and to our reproductive organs and everything like that come out of that. And I'm, I thought it was interesting that they were saying that that was like a second brain to the stegosaurus and so like in a sense when you go to the doctor and they do your tests on your reflexes they hit your knee and your knee jerks out because it doesn't go all the way to your brain it goes to your spinal cord and then a reflex is 
initiated and it comes back and that's what kicks out. So your brain doesn't actually function like that. So in a sense, it's almost like a second brain, even in humans. So it was interesting that they took that and expanded on it and made it into the uh, location of the brain of the machines. That was was really cool. And I love the Asimov reference in the name of the title. I'm actually currently reading those books. I'm reading The Complete Robot by Isaac Asimov. And it includes all of iRobot and all the short stories about the robots. And it's really interesting stuff. And so, like, that made it even more interesting to me when I saw the title. And I was like, oh, this is going to be good. I think they're really well-versed in all forms of sci-fi. The really scientific versions and the more fantasy-like versions of sci-fi. They really seem to have done their research and done a lot. And supposedly they've claimed there's these commercials advertising a website called FringeScience.com, which is run through Fox. And they've basically expressed that what they're doing with that website is they're putting all the research that they use to create the plot lines of the episodes on the website to prove that the stuff that they're talking about on this show is somewhat legitimate. So on that Sega Source thing, you might be able to visit that website and get those facts verified. Cool. So that's one thing to do. I'm assuming that they're doing that. I mean, most shows, medical shows or whatever, they have researchers, people that are hired. Oh, absolutely. That stuff. I think Fridge, they have a team like that too. Yeah, my friend actually, last night we were studying and he saw that I was watching Bones and said, oh, I got a question for you. He's like, the writers of Bones contact you tomorrow to come and be their science advisor. Would you leave med school? And I go... Oh, that's a tough one. Because <laughs> I really, I really want to be a doctor, but could you really pass up bones? No, no, not sure like that. Uh uh-uh. uh I know. I mean, so I, I would. I, I was yeah. like, I hate you, Regender. <laughs> that, that's a <laughs> hypothetical that makes me have to think. That's a bad hypothetical for people. Oh my gosh. Yeah, oh. But wow, that's yeah. a mind explosion. Yeah. Anyway. Well, with that, I think we're going to move into our discussion about a show that I would give anything to write for. I mean, I would give the shirt off my back, whatever, especially after the episode on Friday night, which blew my mind on so many levels. We're going to talk about the Smallville 200th episode, Homecoming. Lois takes Clark to their five-year reunion at Smallville High, and 31st century legionnaire member Brainiac 5 travels to his past to show Clark some unknown facts and future predictions of his life. The 200th episode of Smallville is one of those moments in a TV series that you can just watch over and over again. Because unlike the 100th episode, it was incredibly inspiring and heartwarming. Also, this episode was not just a tribute to a highly successful television series that started 10 years ago on the WB. It was a tribute to the Superman mythology due to its story encompassing the major points in Clark Kent's life for all the major incarnations of the character. For example, what I mean by this is that within the comics, the movies, and other incarnations, TV shows, and whatnot, certain things have happened, such as Clark's father died, which was the center of this episode, and also naturally him becoming Superman, which was both the main focus of this episode was the death of Clark's father, which basically set him on the path to becoming Superman. And that theme has been universal within all versions. And the fact that this episode, the 200th episode, 
focus on this, it made this episode go beyond just the world of Smallville. It became something that was tributing all the Superman mythology that's come over the past 70 years. And this monumental episode starts out very small with a simple scene between Clark and Lois in the barn where she convinces our hero to go to his five-year class reunion. And as I said last week, every scene we get with these two proves that Tom Welling and Erica Durant are the definitive incarnation of Lois and Clark. With that being said, both Christopher Reeve and George Reeves are great as Superman in their own right, but they've never had the chemistry with their Lois Lane like Tom Welling does. Adding on to that notion, I love the whole thing at the reunion about no one remembering that Lois attended Smallville High, because it proved to me that this incarnation of Lois is a comic relief to Clark's straight man, allowing the writers of Smallville to create a more symbiotic relationship between these two lovers that makes Lois more like Clark's partner rather than the person he ends up having to save all the time. Following this scene, we cut to Smallville High, where a psychotic counselor is about to stab a voodoo doll of Clark. And at this point, I'll admit that I groaned because I thought that the long-anticipated episode 200 was going to revolve around a corny meteor freak. But then the writers showed us that they were just poking fun at the past when Brainiac comes in and lobotomized the counselor. And I have to apologize to the showrunners of Smallville and the writers that I ever doubted you guys. You've done a great job since you guys took over back in Season 8, and the fact that I doubted you, I apologize for that. And the whole counselor thing was quite funny after I rewatched the episode a second time. Speaking of Brainiac, or in this case, Brainiac 5, compared to Jonathan Kent, James Marsh's performance in this episode made him the next best thing to take Clark on a journey where he confronted his past, present, and future. In fact, Marster's performance reminded me a little bit of his portrayal of my favorite character that he's played, Spike. You're a wee little puppet man. Through him knocking Clark upside the head with the answer to, and I'm channeling Spike here, his sodding problems. Speaking of traveling to the past, I was glad that we got through all the lot of stuff at the beginning of this episode. Because, honestly, it would have totally blown this episode's theme of focusing on the present and letting go of the past. However, I like the idea that they threw in some life house to the episode. And if you listen to the live show, our guest host Michael J. Petty sings a few bars of the song, which is funny. But I'm glad that they threw in some life house to this episode, basically the pop music from season one, because it strongly established a contrast between Clark's relationship with Lana and his relationship with Lois, which is vastly different. And I'm glad that his relationship with Lois is vastly different because it's made this show much more compelling. At the same time, I really wish we would have gotten more of Chloe or for Allison Mack to actually be in this episode instead of in a flashback. But I was glad to see that Chloe's work as a journalist was inspiring a younger generation of Torch writers, which was very interesting. And it put a smile on my face, especially when she sent the kids a text message, because it was great to hear that Chloe's still out there safe. That meant a lot to me. So thank you, writers, for that. After all this established, 
we get to the meat and potatoes of this episode. A view into the future. And boy, it was quite a view. I have to tell you, and it was quite a view for everyone. First off, in the future, the fear in the back of my head that the spark in the romance for Tom Welling and Erica Durant's rendition of Lois and Clark was going to die after they were married, like it did in the comics during the mid-90s. But this was totally thrown out the window as we got to see Erica Durant play an older Lois to just a great effect. She's just great as Lois Lane. And I just love how hip and cool and upbeat she is. And just I love it. I just love every minute with her and Clark on Smallville on screen. It's just great. Then after 10 years of waiting, I finally got to see him. I've been waiting forever for this. I finally got to see... It's a bird! It's a plane! My Superman. The Clark Kent that I've grown up with in his full glory. And honestly, I don't know if I'm overselling it here, but it was really beyond anything my wildest dreams could have imagined. I've imagined writing for the character. I've imagined what he's been like. I've imagined writing for the comics for this character, which is something I definitely want to do for my life. And I was blown away by it. And I know we only got to see him for 30 seconds, but the charisma and confidence that Tom Welling gave to his rendition of Superman in this scene was unbelievable. And honestly, if they could transfer both his performance and Erica Durant's performance as Lois and Clark into the comic books, the Superman mythology is going to inspire many, many more generations to come. And I really hope this inspires something really magical to happen with the Superman comics. And that this lightning in the bottle that Tom Welling and Erica Durantsev created with their performances is going to continue on in the future. And the Superman comics, I hope that they never get old with just how great they are playing these characters. And I just go on and on and on about it, but it's really that good in my opinion. Going back to the present, we got this nice warm and fuzzy scene where a meteor freak from the season one episode Metamorphosis, he's known as the Bug Boy, tells Lois to thank Clark for inspiring him to turn his life around. And through the writers of the show doing this and having this scene, they almost justified the fact that despite the teenage angst in earlier season and sort of losing its way for a while, kind of in season six and seven, this show at its core is about a hero's rise to glory. Speaking of a rise to glory... Justin Hartley had another home run of a scene in this episode where he played the politically driven Oliver Queen that we all know and love from the comics. And he does this to justify his actions as a hero. You're damn right I'm a hero. And I'm not doing it alone. By the way, I've got to give the writers credit for being extremely ballsy and letting Oliver's speech tackle some serious issues going on today in our country. And I really love that they throwed in a John F. Kennedy quote. Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. Because it really let regular people connect with someone like Oliver Queen and his challenges that he's facing and his decision to be a vigilante. And I think everyone can relate to JFK and it spans several generations. So that was a great move on their part to mention him. And I never realized how fitting that speech is to the superheroes that are out there and written about today. Then we go to Jonathan Kent's grave, where we all, I feel as an audience, connected with Clark 
on a very deep personal level. As together, we kind of, at this point, there's been so much hype and excitement for the final season, I don't think we've realized it. And I don't think Clark realized it either, that we're going to have to eventually, come this May, tell Smallville goodbye. But for those of us who have watched from the beginning, we, like our hero, like he mentioned this episode, will always hold on to Smallville. And we'll never forget. Because in my opinion, it's been out for so long, and so many of us are looking forward to watching it every week. It'll be with us no matter where we go. Or no matter how many years after it's over and done with. It'll still be with us. And on that somber note, Clark, with a simple, confident look that honestly I believe only Tom Welling could give, gets Lois to dance with him. And finally, after 100 episodes, he finally lets go of the past that's weighing him down. And he floats up into the air with Lois in his arms. And with that just great thought and the happy thought that Clark has finally flown, I want to hand things over to you, Nico, with your thoughts on Smallville. I really enjoyed this episode. I was not at all disappointed by the way we saw Clark fly. We talked about this on Friday during yeah. the live episode. And I thought that it would be love and leaving his fears of the future and past behind that ultimately allowed him to fly. And I mentioned that. And that seems to be how the writers are feeling as well. Now, I don't think we'll see him fly again until later in the season or probably the finale. Because yeah, I think they had be mentioned shot. before. Yeah. But it was nice to see now, even if it was only a few inches and for a few seconds. The Brainiac scenes were excellent. And I love seeing Tom as the true Clark Kent, like you said. Yeah. The future Clark that we know he will become when he becomes the Superman. We discussed the possibility of a movie after the finale. And I mentioned on Friday that I think that Tom Welling has earned the right of first refusal to play any Superman in any movie that comes out of the Smallville momentum for the Superman franchise. And I mentioned on Friday, and I think you agree with me on this, that Tom has been Superman for the longest time and has the most screen time of any actor who's played yes. Superman. So he deserves the respect and honor to be the next movie Superman. That's yeah. just my two cents on that part of it. And I think that if anybody who's running the franchise is smart, they'll realize what a, a goldmine this is and put out a movie with these actors, ones that have caught and captured another generation of Superman fans. This is Superman for the 21st century. The show started 2001. Exactly. This is the Superman of this new century, is Tom Welling. Yeah, and to not use him in the last film, which was by all accounts, not a very good interpretation of the Superman. I know you enjoy some aspects of it, and I yeah. agree. I enjoy some things as well. But a lot of people hate that movie. And I'm not saying it's anyone's fault. I'm just saying don't make the same mistake again. Use Tom Welling. What? Use Eric Durance. Use all the actors from Smallville that you can. And I think that was the problem with Superman Returns, is that they were almost looking for Smallville in that movie. Because that's what they saw. That's what they knew. Right. And I know I went with friends of mine who just watched Smallville. And they were like, this is kind of corny. Yeah. And they were yeah. saying, well, this isn't like Clark's character. Clark isn't going to fly around and be stalker. He's going to try to fight. He's going to get mad. And he's going to do this and that. He's not going to be 
just I'm always around. You know, yeah. Clark has got a lot more passion. And yes, he was very focused and confident in that scene where he talked with Clark, but he still had that passion in him. If you know what I'm exactly. talking about. I do. And Tom Welling, that was one thing I thought, you know, when he becomes a real Superman, is that passion he brings to the character so gonna be there and it was there. Even when they were talking to each other, I mean we got to see the difference between the two. And they moved in the same gesture, you know. Their heads moved in a certain way. And I don't know how, about the Tom Welling's mannerism, but there's third things he does when he has to go heroic, when he's got to be super bad. And both versions were doing that. He gave something that was a step farther, but still maintained the character that we've watched for 10 years. Right. And Erica Durant's hasn't really changed a lot. I think Lois has peaked as of season eight, in my opinion. So there wasn't much difference, but it was nice to see them be really open with each other. Because on Smallville, we, the characters aren't really normally that open with each other. So it was a nice change of pace to see with this episode as well. Now, I have to totally agree with you about the scene with Oliver and his speech. That was, wasn't was the best scene, obviously, of the episode, no. but it definitely fit in there. And it was amped up and great writing and everything to fit in such a great episode it didn't feel like out of place. And I loved the speech that he gave. And I loved when Clark walked in and he saw him. It was like that little nudge he needed or that little bit of confidence that he needed. And you could see his face changed. He sat up a little bit. He looked right into the camera and he made his speech. And that was what we needed to see out of Oliver and what we needed to see out of the Green Arrow. Because really since the episode where he blows up Lex, he's been kind of wishy-washy. And now I think we're going to start seeing that Green Arrow that we need to see. Well, that's the Green Arrow in the comics. Exactly. Who starts throwing his politics around and just says, you know what? Listen, if you don't like it, deal with it. And Mm -hmm. that was great to see. But you have to remember, that came because of Superman. And I love it. And I really think this show... I mean, there's a debate, and you can go back and forth, that Jeff Johns, who writes the Superman comics and has done an excellent job at turning that comic book around, might have come up with the idea. I like to give Smallville credit to it just because it was what I was watching first. But I really think they've established this strong idea within the comics and now on this show that Superman or Clark is the one that inspires all the other characters. The other heroes exist, and they are who they are because of him and the example he sets. And honestly, and that's the other thing I want to say, is that they show that one scene where Oliver was sitting in his room watching TV or whatever, drinking, and he was hoping that Clark called. And he was really depressed that he didn't hear from him. I think that relationship goes for all the other superheroes. They need his acceptance. And when he's there and he's supporting them, they light up. And I think when he's there... They want to fight their hearts out. They want to fight and believe for what they stand for even more so. Just Clark enhances that. And it's just great that they've done this thing where Superman, he's Superman. That he's the center of everything. With that name, he's got to make everyone else stronger. He's got to rise above. And this show has hit that theme dead on. It's unbelievable at how well they've hit it. And I also think that's something that the earlier showrunners back, starting from season one until season seven... They didn't get that. They were scared to go there. And I'm glad that these writers have finally got it right and done it right now. Was there anything else with this? Nico, I mean, I know there's just a lot of great stuff. 
You loved James Marsters in this, didn't you? I did. Another solid performance by a, an actor that we both love in his many roles. Not just Spike and uh, Brainiac, but many roles that I've seen yeah. him and I've enjoyed. But definitely, his scenes, he almost captured the spotlight in a couple of them, just for him being himself. But obviously, Clark was the main focus yeah. for us. But it's great to have such great supporting actors well, who can come back to the show and just pick up where they were. I'll say this about James Marsters as an actor. He is very good at bringing out the other actors. And he did that perfectly here, and I think that's why they brought him in. Is He just has this knack for making the other actors around him better. I can't tell you how many times on Buffy that Spike would come into a scene or you know James Marsters would be in a scene and all the other characters would get ten times better when he was there. And I think it happened here too. So I give him props for this and I think we got to see his best performance on this show. Because I feel like he was underused up until this episode. And I'm glad that they kind of gave him a good send-off for him being a part of the show as well. And it's also the CWWB's way of saying, I'm sorry we canceled your show at the end of season five. <laughs> sorry, had to knock him for that. Had to knock yeah. him. I know if it wasn't for the events that took place, Smallville would not be here, but still, those were great shows, and it's a shame that Angel got the axe. Indeed. And now, Indeed. I'm going to move into the show that actually replaced Angel, but I think I might love it more than Angel, so I don't know if I feel as bad that it got canceled for it but anyway we're going to talk about supernatural who really had a great episode of follow-up smallville with the episode entitled weekend at bobby's in this week's episode bobby turns to sam and dean for help when the demon crowley refuses to return his soul as agreed and this episode marked the return our favorite supporting actor and main topic of one of our podcast episodes, the great Mark A. Shepard as Crowley. But believe it or not, with this episode, he didn't steal the show. He was good at it, but I don't think he stole the show. I think the title of stealing the show needs to go to Jim Beaver, whose character of Bobby was the central focus of this episode, with the story being told from his point of view. And this episode was very similarly done to the Buffy the Vampire Slayer episode, The Zeppo, which was told from supporting character Xander Harris's point of view. And Xander was a character I loved, and I loved how that episode followed him. And Bobby's a character I love on Supernatural, and I loved how this episode followed him. And as outstanding as Jim Beaver was in this episode, a lot of credit needs to go to Jensen Ackles in his directorial debut in this episode. And I've got to say, the man behind one of my favorite characters on television, Dean Winchester, did a great job at giving us some really laugh-out-loud Bobby Singer moments that performed the incredible feat of increasing my already existing love for the character. And my absolute favorite Bobby scene in this episode was when he threw an Okami, which is like a Japanese vampire. That's at least how it appeared to me on the show. And he basically throws this Okami into his neighbor's wood chipper. And he ends up spraying her with the monster's blood. And it's really quite hilarious. And she's just standing there covered in blood. And Bobby, he's just trying to make a normal neighborly conversation with her. 
and she's just terrified. I thought the whole thing was just absolutely hilarious. I also, with this episode, I enjoyed seeing a day in the life of a hunter who really has a less glorified style of battling monsters and hunting down creatures compared to Sam and Dean. And seeing this, it was not only funny, but it showed how valuable Bobby is to hunters everywhere. And that I think, this is a crackpot theory, that he will be most likely leading the charge that's going to come down the road against Samuel's hunters when it is discovered whatever they're mysteriously doing, which is probably not good. Continuing on the topic of a day in the life of Bobby Singer, the gag of him acting as a dispatch through the use of his various phone lines that represents different government agencies is simply genius. And really, this gag, it just never gets old. And at the same time, this phone gag actually gave a nod to Smallville and superhero fans by Bobby's FBI line being registered to a Frank Castle, which is the same name of the Marvel Comics superhero, The Punisher. And Dean called Bobby under the name John Jones, paying reference to the DC hero and the character featured on Smallville, Martian Manhunter. Another aspect of this episode that I just can't say enough about was how well the characters of Bobby and Rufus played off of each other. The witty sarcasm between these two stubborn seasoned hunters was highly amusing, and I definitely want to see more of it in future episodes. So please, people behind Supernatural, if you're listening, bring Rufus back again and have him work with Bobby. It was great stuff. Also, I love the 180 the writers pulled in this episode, where we thought that Bobby was going to exchange Crowley's son for his soul, but in reality, Bobby used the son to find the location of Crowley's remains, which he ended up using to get his soul back. And I really liked the whole speech that, I think it was Bobby that gave it, that demons are nothing but glorified ghosts, and that they can be destroyed in the same way. And I like that because we've seen the demons, these high and mighty, powerful, dangerous things, and I loved it that they showed some vulnerability of them in this episode. And I don't know who came up with that, it was Jensen Ackles or the writers of the episode, but I give them kudos for that. It's a well-thought-out idea, and hopefully some research went into that as well. By the way, if there's anyone that can outsmart one of Mark A. Shepard's characters besides Nate Ford on Leverage, it's got to be Bobby Singer, and he did it to great effect in this episode. Finally, this episode left me with actually two speculative questions for future episodes. First, how exactly are these supernatural creatures from other countries showing up on U.S. soil. Then I feel like that's going to add another can of worms on top of whatever Samuel's doing and the civil war that's going on in heaven. Also, second, since Sam indeed went to Scotland in this episode to help Bobby get his soul back, Nico, do you think it's possible that they could do a stint of episodes that take place in Europe or another country? I know Bones has done it. I'm wondering if this show can too. So with that, Nico, we're going to get your thoughts on Supernatural. I really enjoyed this episode because it was told from Bobby's perspective. It really was a weekend in Bobby's, in his life, you know? And so it was great to see Bobby's life, what his life is like when he's not off helping Sam and Dean on a case. I hope that this means now that he's got his soul back, he'll be making more appearances on the show. And there's been far too few Bobby appearances this year for my liking. Yeah, I agree. As for them getting his soul back, I love how they stuck it to Crowley. Like yes. you said, if anyone was going to outsmart a Mark A. Shepard character, it was going to be Bobby. 
And I liked how they used his son's ghost against him and were able to put enough leverage on him to get Bobby his soul back. And it was cool that we learned a new way to kill demons. You know, like you just said, they're essentially warped souls of ghosts and so that they can be killed by burning their bones. And that was awesome that we found that out. Well, um, it was just cool how Bobby torched the one demon. That was a great yeah. scene. This was probably my favorite episode thus far this season. And I, I think it was directly proportional to the amount of Bobby we saw in the episode. Yeah. I'm not as big a fan of Samuel or any of the other guest stars mm-hmm. supporting characters that we've seen this year thus far. And I am a big fan of Bobby. And thus I hope, like I said before, we see more of him now that he's got his soul back. And he gained the use of his legs. I mean, he had them when he lost his soul, but he didn't lose them again when he got his soul back. So that makes me think he's going to be more active. Now, getting to your questions, I don't know how the supernatural creatures from other countries are showing up on U.S. soil. I do think it's significant, and I think it'll play a role in our crackpot theory of the guys going after the alphas. And with that being said, I also think, yes, they are going to go overseas because I think they're going to search for the alphas. thing that they killed in Wisconsin was only usually in Greece. Yeah. And then the Nami was only in Japan. So I think to kill the alpha for the, the Nami, they'd have to go to Japan. To kill the alpha for the one in Greece, they'd have to go to Greece. So I do think that they might do a couple episodes overseas whether they're soundstage overseas or actually overseas, that's to be determined. But I do think that that's going to be something they do in, in the future episodes. Because I do really think they're going to start going after these alphas. I think there's just a lot of hilarious potential for Dean Winchester in another country. I just think the trouble yes. that he could get into is going to be hilarious. Absolutely. And I mean, I can Absolutely. see it. I'm, I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Well, it's going to be a lot like Booth was when he went to England in that episode of Bones, where he was just flipping out about the cars and everything else. So I think we'll get some of that from him. So that would be a a riot. And, you know, I want to ask you this. Would you rather see more of stuff with Bobby and Rufus and their kind of banter than Samuel and the cousins and all that, Bess? Oh, absolutely. Now, that might actually be something that we could see is Bobby and Rufus out on the road as maybe uh, a pair of hunters and Sam and Dean, and they run into each other on the same hunt or something like that. And it becomes a little bit of a a competition, the old guys versus the new guys. Uh, That might be interesting to see in a future episode. But we don't want to see Bobby leave too much because he does play that important role back at the house. A lot of other hunters rely on him. And that's what I'm saying. I feel like Samuel's doing the same thing for his group. Yeah, they're the masterminds of the two Because they're groups, man and phone and stuff. And yeah. so I think that's how he's going to lead the charge. I don't think Bobby's going to be on the front lines, but I think that they're going to be playing strategies against each other. Once we figure out what Samuel's yeah, up to. What, and I think Rufus, and they may bring in some more characters, they're all going to be on one side, and then it's going to be the Campbells on the other side. And it's really frustrates me that they killed off Joe, and what's the mom's name? I don't recall. I'm blanking here. But anyway, it's a bummer that they killed them off. Because they would have fit perfectly, I think, into this plot line. Okay. That's my thought. You know, I don't care for the Hunters. 
Rufus and Bobby are how hunters are to me. You know, they're just... Yeah. I don't know if redneck is the correct term, but they're just a bunch of guys that like drinking beers and they hunt bad guys and, you know, they're just jamming to their classic rock. I mean, that's a hunter to me. And Samuel's group seems more like a family and sinister and all this stuff. And I just think hunting should be fun. That's what Dean Winchester's taught me and why I love his character on TV. So this was great to see more of the fun side of hunting, and I hope we get to see more as it goes, because I think this show is in a position that it can do more lighthearted stuff, because we've got the big bad apocalypse out of the way. Right. So is there anything else you wanted to add in there, Nico? Because, I mean, this was uh, equally as great of an episode. No, I, I think we hit the highlights. I enjoyed it immensely. Like I said, I want to see some more Bobby this season. I feel like we haven't seen enough of him yet. Yes. So, everybody out there, if you hear me, we want more Bobby. Please, Supernatural writers, give us more Bobby because we love him and can't say enough about Jim Beaver. He's great on this show. So with that, we're going to close up our episode. And, Nico, you want to tell everyone what's going down next week? I think everyone kind of obviously knows, but there is a slight announcement yeah. you got to make in there. Sure. Next week's episodes will continue our pattern of reviewing the TV shows that we are talking about today. However, next week will not include Bones and Fringe because they are going to be no new episodes until November 4th due to Fox showing the baseball playoffs and World Series. But with those shows being off, you can still, you're more than welcome to give us speculation you have on future episodes of Bones and Fringe. Also, you can give us your thoughts on the other shows that are going on. And you can do this by visiting our website, of course, at www.acrosstheairways.com. And there you can find links to our new Facebook page. You can like us there. You can see all of our friends that support the show. And you can become a friend that supports our show as well. You can also hit up our Twitter, which is Across Airwaves. There's no the on there. Hit us up on there. Give us your thoughts on what you're thinking is going on with different shows and things like that. Also, on our Twitter page, we are planning on giving you scheduling updates so you know when there's new episodes of your shows are on during various nights during the week. Also, you can email us at acrosstheairwaves at gmail.com. Also, you can visit our new YouTube channel as well. Our YouTube channel is run by Michael J. Petty, one of our co-hosts during the live show. And he's put up some great and really entertaining promos advertising the Smallville live show, which occurred last Friday, as well as a great promo for our podcast in general. They're great stuff. Check them out. Also, we're planning on adding 10-minute clips of our podcast episode on that site to get more interest in our podcast. So we're doing those things, so check that out. Michael's been producing videos pretty frequently so go check it out and watch some pretty entertaining and fun commercials. Also, if we got big events coming up, we're thinking about doing another live show. Check that page for promos for what we have coming down the pipe. So with all that established, once again, I'm Dan Schmidt. And I'm Nico Rustin. And until next week, we'll catch you on the airwaves. We now return to our regularly scheduled program.